imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with your host, Kalin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool. I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time for the one, uh, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it. Welcome to it, everyone. Uh, tonight's guest, Greg Sonier from Deerhoof, has it, it, a part two for a part one that happened so long ago, it actually seems like it was in a different world in, in some ways. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's something that is happening. Uh, thanks, of course, to all the Thrasherpiece Theater folks. Always great times. You can bang yo head. If needed. Of course, this show is called Protonic Reversal. Come to Protonic Reversal. ProtonicReversal.com for the archives. And, yeah, this is a thing that we do. We talk to people. And it's uh, we use the royal we, apparently. This is the whole situation. So I'm really excited to talk to Greg. Uh, Deerhoof's a very interesting band. They're very cool. They follow their own North Star, if you will. As well as, uh, you know, making really great music. and Really interesting. It's a very idiosyncratic cool interesting drummer uh and a very you know a sweetheart of a guy and real real thoughtful we got into a lot of stuff last time uh as what tends to happen with this show is you get uh you know people that are from the bay area gonna talk about the bay area how things used to be how things are different now and, uh, but, you know, we also talked a lot about, uh, we talked about a lot about other things. And so we're going to, you know, there's, there's going to be more of that. We're going to talk a lot about Deer Riff music. I realize in retrospect, we didn't get that far into the discography of the Mighty Deer Hoof. So uh, we kind of spent a lot of time in the early days. And uh, I think we're going to get more into that now. So, uh, yeah, some housekeeping. There's been some, not been a ton of episodes lately. Not as much as I've kind of been doing that's largely due to you know just life concerns things along those lines uh but i always appreciate everyone listening uh tuning in lots of great 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 uh feedback on the let's have a fab episode uh sid butler and you know it's something where Sometimes I got more time than others. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. <laughs> so, if you've missed it, sorry. If you haven't, not sorry. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, 
Tonight is uh, Greg Sonier of Durhoff. I'm excited about this. This should be good. Is there anything else to say? The ACDC special was good, good, clean fun. Good, clean American fun. That should be heading out uh, soon to the free feeds. Oh, yeah, patreon.com slash Controversial. If you want to get these episodes sooner, if you are looking for a specific episode and you're like, hey, it's not on my thing that does the stuff, uh, that's why. It's in that. And uh, patreon.com slash Controversial. Dollar a month will get you there. Helps support the show, pay the bills, all that good stuff. Any way. Uh, we're just going to get right down to it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to um, looking to see what's on Greg's mind. He's an interesting dude. And uh, there's just been so much that's happened. <laughs> there's been so much that's happened. <laughs> Greg, welcome. Welcome. So I was just thinking about how much stuff that has happened since you were on. Like it's it's like a different world almost. You mean since we did the test ten minutes ago? Uh, well, no, no, but I mean since <laughs> yeah, not that much has I, changed it, since then. Yeah, it's been a busy ten minutes for me. Yeah, it's someday ten minutes seems like ten years now. Uh, <laughs> no, but last time we talked, I, I just looked. It was uh, October of 2019, so that was pre-pandemic. No that was pre-uprising. That was. Uh, Again, I'm going to harken back and say it's a different world. Uh, it's crazy to think that how much stuff has has changed just since then. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe you could uh, maybe one could uh, <clears throat> faintly glimpse the uh, outlines of some of these possibilities, you know, but uh, but it's true. They've come to pass. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, <laughs> black folks being killed indiscriminately by police officers and <laughs> large-scale yeah. economic yeah, but, uh, desecration but, but was still didn't, there. Uh, <laughs> but we didn't know that one particular murder would, yeah, you know, it would, it would, uh, it would um, stimulate the largest mass movement in American history, you know, didn't expect that to happen. Um, and, uh, that to me is maybe one of the, I mean, <laughs> that, that was the, that's maybe the biggest news yeah. since, since we talked last time was, was that large of a popular uprising, but <laughs> it's, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how you felt, and um, but and I, I'm not really sure how everyone's feeling, and everyone may be feeling differently. But I'm feeling in a very weird zone about it right now, where <laughs> I've I've noticed, like maybe just in the past week or so, <laughs> that <laughs> it's a bit like it seems like it's no longer okay to post on social media mm. defund the police however <laughs> right. it is okay to comment on someone's post saying you shouldn't have said that in your post now in the comment they say of course i'm for defunding the police but you shouldn't have put that on social media which by the way i just did in this comment <laughs> you know right. and there's this funny zone right now where 
um, there seems to be a new mass movement. It's not as powerful as the one from the summer, but there's a new mass movement shaming people for posting uh, that they support uh, defunding the police um, uh, uh, change, but then also kind of in parentheses saying, of course, they also support um, defunding <laughs> right. the police, but we shouldn't be allowed to say that aloud. Um, because it's not um, it's not popular enough, and therefore, and even you know, I was watching this. Uh, it was Noam Chomsky's birthday a couple of days ago, and I watched this really neat. You know, it was from really recently, uh, just a Zoom call that some college students had done with him, and um, <laughs> and it's like you know, um, so much truth is is stated so plainly in the interview but when it comes to the that question at least to me it becomes his point of view becomes confusing mm -hmm. you know he's saying well of course that's not going to be a popular point of view defund the police or abolish the police and so therefore to say it is to give a gift to the right wing. Um, but then I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but is anarchism, a, <laughs> you know, yeah. a popular extreme point of view is, is uh, um, you know, defunding. I mean, the, the, the number of stances that he's taken in his 92 years that were not mainstream left me just on that one point, scratching my head a bit, like why? Seems out of character. <laughs> Almost, yeah, right? I mean, why was it okay to have a dissenting opinion that was not likely to come true anytime soon um, on all these other issues? But for some reason, on that one, it was considered bad form, in his opinion, to to state it aloud. And so I still feel a bit confused because of how much right now I many of the voices that I trust are not agreeing with each other, I guess, you know, so I feel a little lost about what to do. <laughs> um, what's a, what's a, what is helpful to say and what's harmful to say aloud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, w with along those lines, so if the right wing had done it, they call it a police reform, right? That's what they right. would have called it. And, and because they just excel at the, framing of language in a way that makes the terms uh, favorable to them. And that is something where if you stop and think about, you know, what that means, what does police reform mean? You mm -hmm. could accomplish the same goals as what, as it's the defund the police It's defund. The police is more aggressive language. I guess, yeah. Uh, to some people. But I have noticed what, you, what you, you've talked about, that it's a meta conversation. And it, it comes back to the thing of like, oh, well, we don't, you know, I was all fine and dandy until everybody started writing. And it's like, well, you didn't like the kneeling. So, right. you know, <laughs> like, I mean, guess what? Like the kneeling wasn't so bad, was it? Huh? And it, it's it's a kind of ridiculous sort of weasel language, I think, as far as that goes. Ooh, weasel words. I learned about weasel words on our Wikipedia page. <laughs> Wonderful. 
but because uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was it was flagged for being filled with weasel words. Uh, <laughs> that's that's amazing. So so I, I think it's it's interesting when we talk about like language being weaponized and and also the idea of mm. you know we we kind of touched upon briefly you know the deer have social media presence like it's you advocate for the things that you advocate for and you put out information and there's opinion you're like you're not trying to fly 50,000 feet above the sky and pretend you're in some aloof ivory tower and not part of the world ah. and, and and i think that that's interesting because it seems like some artists are still attempting to do that as if they're like in some parallel universe where these things are not happening or it has no effect on them maybe it's more like um <laughs> I mean, uh, I know I've felt this way sometimes where if you're making music or any any uh, art format, um, feeling a little nervous to be either too topical, which can make your music dated, and you wouldn't want it to get dated because you've <laughs> been raised with the... Um, you know, with the goal or the ideal that your music is better if it outlasts you, you know, and that if it's posthumously respected, you know, and so <laughs> it feels a little um, too um, unambitious to write a song on a current event topic because you know it's going to be out of date, but... <laughs> and sometimes also, you know, maybe one can feel that you, you, it's related like, oh, I want to address timeless concerns, you know, in, in our, whatever we do. And so I don't want it to be too wrapped up in 2020, you know? Um, and so I can understand, you know, someone wanting their art or their, you know, whatever it is they're projecting to the world to to feel, if not aloof, I mean, at least kind of <laughs> angelic, you know, and kind of, um, uh, yeah, sort of a floating, uh, a floating orb or, or a crystalline orb floating, you know, untouched by, um, by uh, the soap opera of uh, human foibles, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I mean, that's actually very relatable, and I think that that's a good yeah. statement for art being art, uh, because I mean, you know, granted, there's some artists like you know, you know, yeah, Billy Bragg or something along those lines that kind of the melds the two pretty seamlessly. But mm -hmm. I don't think the requirement should be explicitly and directly <laughs> writing songs about like what's happening. But I guess what I'm more <laughs> talking about is using the band platform to communicate with your fans in such a way that. Uh, you have like a, a, a deep connection about the, the things that are happening in the world that are beyond the fact that they're a fan of the music of Deerhoof and <laughs> you guys' art, there's probably going to be an affinity for other things. Uh, mm. and, and I feel like some artists and bands shy away from that. Maybe if not for commercial concerns, then just to yeah. sort of uh, deny again, the, the, I am also a human being that lives in the world. 
Nancy is the same thing that uh, you do, can I say? I mean, when we started, maybe this is what we talked about in the last episode. Is I think that when Deerhoof started in '94, that is, <laughs> that was <coughs> kind of our vibe. We were very shy, and we didn't really know too many people in San Francisco. Um, I think we, you know, we were secretive, <laughs> like. Um, you know, a bit like mag magicians, you know, who didn't want to, you know, reveal uh, our tricks or whatever. And, you know, we we sort of coveted uh, seeming mysterious or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, that has been one of the joys over the years um, is, I mean, particularly when you go on tour, that <laughs> isn't really so possible anymore, especially if you're doing your own merch table I mean you get in conversations with people and that's one of the things I'm missing the most right now you know is just meeting people at the merch table um, because that's where it's like you kind of can't really pretend <laughs> to be aloof at all you're just a person you know trying to sell some some discs you know right, or to, some t-shirts to get some, and, put some gas in the van and get down the road and <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, as a, as yeah, a profit-making so. entity, there's certainly many things you could do that would, you know, probably make more money. But the idea that you get to have this, yeah, this... but it also just became, it started to become more appealing to, to be a person, you know, right. and to, yeah. to have the band be um, made up of people um, with distinct personalities and, and, you know, we started opening up to like doing more, um, collaborations with other people. So, you know, John will do a record with his friend Raven or I'll mix some record for, for, um, you know, um, my friend Balathizer or, you know, this kind of thing. Um, we became more like individual people instead of some, you know, mysterious, um, you know, group filled with uh, anonymous. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and and as much as you know, I I adore David Bowie. David Bowie is David Bowie because he's David Bowie, and he conducted himself the way he that he conducted himself that involved an era of mystery and kind of you know presenting personas and characters that were parts of his personality. But there's no kind of. Did I ever tell you oh, about beating David Bowie? I, I if you did, I would. I don't remember, and I would that would be astounding because that sounds wonderful. Yeah, please tell me. Because one year in New York, they had something called the Highline Festival, and he was uh, appointed guest curator. And oh wow, he, okay, cool. I guess had seen us play just regular club shows in New York um, two or three times, although we'd never met him. Um, but we'd hear about it, you know, like, I think I saw David Bowie up in the balcony or, you know, this kind of thing. But then he, he invited us on his festival. And <laughs> so, you know, we were there at the show. Um, and, you know, maybe it was before the show started and suddenly he shows up backstage and, and we're all chatting and <laughs> wow. he has. Yeah learned all our names he knows all of our names and and introduces himself and, and says hi satomi you know i'm david etc um and <laughs> he had just come straight from um another 
show at another venue that was also part of the Heinlein Festival that he curated. And it was, I forget what, new music ensemble, um, but they were playing. There was a composer called Conlon Nancaro, who during the era of the Spanish Civil War, um, <laughs> pre-World War II, um, had gone to Spain and volunteered or something, um, and then ended up um, exiling himself to Mexico and divorced from all of his, you know, new music community um, that performed whatever he was writing, he started writing instead for the player piano. <laughs> oh, wow. So he composed on piano rolls, you know, where you just, um, you cut out holes in paper, um, you know, and then that's, that's when the, the player piano will hit a note. And, um, right, as you the, know, as the, the role... has no dynamics at all. It's all just like banging on the piano. Um, right. But one of the things that he realized he was able to do, obviously, incredibly easily on piano rolls that human performers can basically not do at all is do hyper irrational um, rhythms. So it would be 14 against 17, but oh, taking, sure. yeah. taking place in one second or something like that. <laughs> Super bizarre, complicated cross rhythms. Um, and then he, he sort of, um, you know, became a kind of legend. And his music uh, for player piano became legendary over the years. And, you know, he just had these home recordings of it um, that got released on LPs. And, and it, it became... Uh, legendary, but no one could ever perform it. And finally, um, <laughs> I suppose, you know, uh, classical performance had become insane enough that that some people started to think they might be able to pull off the 14 against 17, you know. And so somebody started making arrangements for chamber ensemble of these player piano pieces and David Bowie had just arrived <laughs> to our backstage from such a show which was a live performance oh, wow. of okay. some chamber music by yeah. Conlon Nancaro you know arranged for for live humans to play and I'm telling you it was like um <laughs> I don't know whether he was maybe in his 60s at the time, you know, exactly how old he was, but it was like talking to a college freshman, you know, uh, the, the level of excitement that he was just <laughs> exuding in the room, having seen this Conlon Nancaro thing, was really so charming. And, and uh, I get your point about how, you know, He's the eternal man of mystery and chameleon-like and always changing his image. But the fact is, in person, what a nut and, and so friendly, <laughs> yeah, so charming. Yeah. A fan uh -huh. of music, it sounds like. like, a, like a, a, and and of, uh... a real fan of music, a true fan of music. It wasn't just a, 
you know, a way to make some bread, you know, for him. And he, he was excited because Ken Nordine was going to be the next show that was coming. He oh, was wow. Wild. You know, showing up in town uh, in a couple days. You know, this word jazz guy from <laughs> from maybe the early 60s. Yeah, where, um, where uh, I'm trying to think of where I know Ken Nordine from, but I, I I'm well, he I'm was just fam- he was famous for doing those um, jazz, jazzy one album that was called Colors, and he had yeah. this like personality voice, and so there'd be like jazz music in the background. He'd be like, "All it, you know, or whatever." Yeah, yeah, totally. Really funny record, and and David Bowie was so excited that he was going to get to meet Ken Nordine, and I was just like, "Wow." And, uh, yeah, it was just an unforgettable, you know, sort of 10 or 15 minute experience that I had, you know, that we all had that we got that's to amazing. share. That, that's, uh, uh, that's, I, I really don't, cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, well, and it's to a certain degree, like with David Bowie also, there's, you know, like he, he'd put on the performance and he would like go be David Bowie, but he's also, Right. A guy that is interest, <laughs> clearly interested in art and interested in music and things like that. It's so neat to kind of see, yeah. see, see that uh, window into that first. I mean, that's got to be a surreal situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was he was in a he was dressed up in a suit. His hair was perfect. I mean, it was surreal because it's like you expect to see, you know, a certain level of heightened beauty on an album cover or in an MTV video. But then when he's standing right in front of you and he's that beautiful, it, it felt, um, it felt surreal. Yeah. He's uh, much, much missed. In much like you're experiencing with me right now, you know, <laughs> my actual voice. I mean, just the, the amount of beauty that just pouring out of my throat right now. Uh, it is beautiful, and I'm glad to be talking to you, gang. Because I realized last time we spent so much time talking about old San Francisco and and things along those yeah. lines, we didn't really get that far into the discography. Like I think the last thing we talked about was like Half Bird, uh, which one was Half Bird, which oh, is like man. still like you know early times. That's like two, like almost tw- close to 20 years ago, right? That's got to be like 19 years ago. Something it's like early times, yeah. Uh, so can we, would you mind going through, let's go through some of the records and talk <laughs> about the, uh, the experiences Ask you had. Ask me anything. So, yeah. uh, I, I've, it's, it's Reviel, it's how you say it, right? That's how you say the word? I say Reveille. Reveille? Okay, is it Reveille? Yeah, but God. that's sort of the, you know, that's the American English pronunciation of what, what the bugle blasts first thing in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to actually do it, you know, in the interview. Yes. That's now why this show is this show, Greg. Exactly what melody we're referring to. That's Reveille. Yeah. When, when you when we course, mentioned the record Reveille. in France, they're like, oh, Reveille. You know, yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. they have their own way of saying it. So. <laughs> uh, but that was, so at that point, that's John. And um, Chris, yes, John Chris does some, some extra guitar in there. That... No, oh, Chris had not joined yet. Um, oh, okay. Um, the he guy called Chris Cooper who played on one song called Cooper. But uh, that was Chris Cooper who used to be in Carolina. That's referring back to our last episode. That's so right. That's that right. Yeah. Um, Chris was not in the band, um, although he joined before it was out. We had pretty much – we'd recorded everything, but we hadn't, we hadn't finished the mix. So he was treated, 
in the car, you know, we'd go on tour and the record wasn't officially done yet. Right. He'd be treated to endless, you know, <laughs> variations of rough mixes like, right. oh, we need to turn down the snare drum in this song or, oh, we should cut that song or change the song order. And he was like, what are you guys talking about? You know, th this sounds fine. And then we'd, you know, then we'd be on the next tour and we will have added 10 more overdubs to everything. And he's like, you guys are crazy, you know, just just leave it how it was. It sounded fine, you know. <laughs> and I think that that ended up. I think that the first album that we did with him, <laughs> his point of view there was was. Uh, was, you know, in response to the <laughs> obsessive, you know, kind of overdubbing on Reveille, he, he uh, kind of guided us to do something that was just plain, you know, and live. Right. So, like, with Reveille, uh, the problem was we had recorded some of the songs. <laughs> um, we were basically kind of stealing really short times in a couple different recording studios. One was the now um, defunct, um, what's it called? The one uh, um, uh, tiny telephone. Oh, and yeah, of course. Was the, the one at Mills College um, where we just engineered it ourselves. And But what we ended up with on these really quick recording sessions was we had to bounce it down at the end of the session. So we didn't have anything to mix. We just had a really, really bad stereo rough mix of like drums and guitar and bass. Um, and then for like two years afterwards, we're like, this sounds terrible. This sounds terrible. We can't afford to go to another studio and we have no way to remix it. So let's just find some way to mess with it, you know? We edit out this part and, right, right. you know, paste in some drum samples on this part when the drums get too quiet and then overdub a guitar in this part or add some key, you know, and it just, it went on and, it, you know, whatever. I mean, just the way things can when you <laughs> discover, uh, <laughs> you know, computer <laughs> recording or re computer mixing. And um, it just was a... Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of sanity was was feels like it was was uh, lost in that process. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess I could say that about all of them. I mean, you know, we're always so happy about how they turn out, and then that's when we say, "Okay, it's done." You know, let's let's try and put it out asap, but. You know, the, the process leading up to it always felt, um, you know, a bit, uh, I don't know. We just, just felt like we didn't know what we were doing, you know, and, and stuff sounded really bad to us. And we, we didn't know how to fix it and we didn't have help. Um, so we were teaching ourselves like, okay, what does an equalizer do? What does a compressor do? You know, learning the, uh, the, uh, the tools with it. Yeah. Learning the tools the hard way all trial and error and, and, um, and which, you know, is great. I mean, I wouldn't trade it in, I think, but <laughs> it was also like, you know, sometimes I, if I have regrets in my life, I, I sometimes think back to my twenties and how 
much of them were spent figuring out what an equalizer was instead of doing fun things, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like learning this, this technology that was to achieve the end of doing something, something cool and accomplishing something, but spending so much time and effort. I mean, tour was always, yeah, it was always exciting and a human. Um, but, but yeah, the, 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 the recording part of it just always seemed to take too long. The mixing part it goes faster now and i'm really happy about it um yeah i mean i think reveille is sort of like the where the dividing line of uh you know for lack of a better term where you you know not got weird necessarily but like where the recording <laughs> process became more uh involved in the music like i think mm-hmm. the, the earlier yeah. records are just kind of more straightforward like you know not uh-huh. exactly it but here's a band playing in a room here's what uh-huh. the songs sound like and then that's kind of where it seemed like, you know, you would get a glimpse of what was going to come on the next couple of records where you're just like, well, why don't we try, you know, doing <laughs> Easy this? for you to say. I couldn't get in. <laughs> yeah, I guess in, in the looking back historically now, right? Uh, because if you got like, on Reveille, you have like that, um, I mean, most of the songs are pretty short, but there's not that, that, that eight minute one. That's, but that's uh, the thing. They just kept getting chopped down, you know, they were yeah. all long. And we just like, well, that part, the mix didn't work or somebody hit a bad note. You know, we got it we couldn't remix it. So we just had to either find a way to cover it up or or um, or just <laughs> edit it out. I mean, <laughs> the songs got so short. That's another thing, obviously, that happens when you um, spend a long time reworking something Um you know, it's it's not uncommon for it to <laughs> just keep getting shortened and shortened and shortened until the song's so short, you know, it's a minute long. Um, yeah. So that's interesting that it, it was basically uh, like a utilitarian arrangement then. <laughs> Like, like it wasn't like it you had this master idea desperation. of desperation. Okay, it felt like desperation. I don't know if I feel. I don't know if I feel the same vibe about making music now <laughs> that we felt then. I, I think it was really insular and it was silly. You know, I actually, it's still silly. That hasn't changed, but it was, it was, um, <laughs> you know, sort of self-absorbed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. I, I think that one thing that hasn't changed, you know, um, on any of the records was that I think there was the feeling that this is probably going to be the last one or this could easily be the last one for any number of reasons. You know, the band could break up or the label drops us or, you know, or you just can't stand it anymore. You don't like doing it like it's just feels like too. <laughs> it, the, the, the result isn't worth the the trouble, you know, like it's cool. Like we're definitely glad when something is done and we love how it sounds, but, but you sort of question like, was it really worth, you know, like (laughs) sometimes arguing with each other or, you know, or, or like, (laughs) like, or your computer would crash and you'd lose files or, you know, um, or just, you know, or just the sort of, you know, comparing your you, your song to another song that you love. I mean, I remember on Reveille, it was um, it was around the time of um, 
Amnesiac. And that was the first first Radiohead record that I think, it was definitely the first one I'd ever heard. I, I was not a fan and didn't had never listened to them before before that one and that was the one and somehow you know i went to i don't know whatever it was tower records or something yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah right heard it at a listening station and, and totally, uh, yeah. thought it was cool and uh, and so we bought it so i was just kind of a being everything we were doing on reveille with amnesiac and i'm like well why isn't our song as loud as theirs why why does it not have as much emotion why is it why does the guitar sound so terrible in comparison to their guitar? You know, or whatever. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like you've got the standard for this, this, this thing that you're. I know, but it's really, it's like, it's not really the most healthy process, you know, to, yeah, to, to, to feel like you're competing, um, <laughs> you know, regardless of the fact whether the, 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 what you feel like you're competing with is so much more funded and supported in every way um, than what you're doing, you know, sitting there in your bedroom or whatever. But, but even not counting that, just, just that kind of, I don't know, the, the, the process of spending years comparing oneself to someone else, <laughs> uh, I think does some kind of, some kind of inner, damage you yeah. know that uh, that is really not necessary you know um i'm glad people like reveille or any other record but i i do feel that that process is not necessary and I, that's something that i've <laughs> that's dawned on me over the years is that wait you know i can let go of that that um feeling of trying to outdo you know whatever was the top thing you know that year or out trying to outdo anybody even just outdo the other band on the bill you know like especially you know thinking about 2020 you know and comparing comparing it to 2000 you know the the difference of of mindset i just i would not at all recommend and it doesn't matter because I'm not sure anybody's doing it anyway. I would not recommend um, approaching music the way Deerhoof did in 2000, in 2020. I think that um, communities and and supportiveness and um, backing each other up and letting people be who they are and not having to make everything a battle of the bands in struggle <laughs> for survival yeah. is just being in a band is a battle <laughs> well, but i mean it doesn't need to be and it shouldn't be right um yeah. th there are of course forces in 2020 that are stronger now than they ever were that are <laughs> that force the issue and make it a struggle for survival um, it's not just the music industry. I mean, it's the, our whole society. I mean, any if you live in a country that gave up on gave up on um, <laughs> avoiding the you know pandemic, you 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 know that you're in a society society that has left you for dead. But what do you do therefore? Do you do you is it do you is the way that you will survive? that you simply win against everyone else or is the way that you survive 
um, <laughs> that you band together in some way and you accept um, you accept the differences between people or, you know, um, thinking in terms of music than in terms of music artists and musicians. Just accept their differences and not not have to funnel it into this um, competition for who's going to get on the label or who's right. going to get more plays, you know, on streaming or whatever. I just feel that that com- competitive approach seems more <laughs> like a disgusting relic of the past now than it ever has, you know, and something that the that if humans hope to... <laughs> continue to have civilization on planet earth they're going to have to um, let go of so much of of what seemed absolutely life and death essential um you know um in our own past and i know that i felt that way when we were making reveille it was like well we we have to make this you know this is make or break you know like Rob Fisk and Kelly Good quit the band. I can't even keep the band together. Um, John Dietrich has joined, but this is like now or never, you know, make or break every cliche, you know, um, of like, we, we better do this or else, you know, curtains. And, uh, and so, yeah, that mindset was, was like, I don't know. I just felt like it sort of took its toll, even though we were happy with how the music sounded in the end. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned curtains because I was going to ask. Yeah, which, which, and which... then I joined Chris Cohen. When, <laughs> yeah, he, joined, Chris Cohen. <laughs> when he joined Deerhoof, I joined Curtains yeah, on keyboard, yeah. and that was really fun. Which happened first? Was it kind of at the same time, or I think it was simultaneous. Yeah, I can't really remember. Um, and we all practiced in the same practice space too. So, <laughs> and uh, Curtains was rehearsing. If Chris and I showed up first, and the drummer who was Jamie Peterson uh, at the time um, was late, then there was another band that nobody knows about. There was um, m- me playing Chris's guitar through Chris's amp, and Chris on on Jamie's drums. Oh wow! Which okay. was. Um, which was, uh, we only had one song, um, <laughs> because Jamie wasn't ever that late. Um, <laughs> the song was called Brown Sugar. We were a Rolling Stones tribute band. I was Keith, and uh, Chris was Charlie. And we were we were the best Rolling Stones tribute band I have ever had. We had no vocals. It was only one guitar, one drummer. But still, <laughs> it was like carbon copy. Like, I could do Keith so perfectly and his guitar through his ampeg amp i mean it sounded exactly like brown sugar and then he plays drums exactly like charlie watts no nobody says that but um you know obviously when you listen to the chris cohen records that have come out the the three chris yeah, cohen records you, you get a feel um, for that yeah for sure you get a feel for that you can hear that that charlie watts is is very much his his biggest influence on on his timing and and his way of doing fills and the way he records it and mixes it and everything. (laughs) And it's just the best, you know? So then can you speak a little bit to the songs on, uh, on Apollo then and and how those came together with having Chris in the Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, once we joined the band, we just started writing them and it was a really super creative, (laughs) um, 
um, time period. I mean, I guess it, it, there hasn't really been an uncreative time period, but I just remember, you know, John was still somewhat new and there were still song ideas of his that he'd written before Reveille that for whatever reason we weren't able to record or we played them so badly on the recording that they got axed. And so, and then Chris joins and Chris is just writing songs a mile a minute. And I mean, one of the first ones that I remember writing <laughs> after Chris joined was, um, I seem to remember the same day we were in John Dietrich's living room in West Oakland. And the same day we made up Panda. Oh, wow. <laughs> which was, Satomi made up the, the Panda part and Chris Cohen made up the intro, the do 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 do, and then we just put them together, and it was like it worked like magic. And then Satomi made up a different song um, called "Flower," and then that got combined with something uh, the 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 B part was something John had laying around, and we just suddenly turned that into a song, like all in like the space of like half an hour. We <laughs> we had two two songs, you know on Apollo that we ended up playing, you know, we still play them. I mean, you know, um, and just, you know, it was just really, really, uh, really fun. And, and we, <laughs> we decided to, um, record it fast. You know, we had about, we, we realized we had enough songs and we, <laughs> We were going to go into a studio in Menlo Park, and uh, our friend Jay Polici was going to record us overnight. Mighty day loot of many of the yeah, as well. exactly. He was going to record us in the middle of the night um, when the studio, you know, it wasn't booked, and just do it. Um, we weren't going to pay. Um, he was going to sneak us in there, and. Uh, and so, you know, it was all done in one night, um, except for the two songs at the end. Um, and just, you know, everything played live. Vocals were done later, but the, all the instruments were live. It was, again, I mean, <laughs> as much joy as there could be in the process of writing songs and, and touring on it later and everything. It's like the actual recording process was so stressful. I mean, I just, I just remember how... You know, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I guess I guess anytime you're doing a band, it's going to be a bit like this. And you know from experience that, you know, if you're on no budget, it's not like you can come back into the studio tomorrow and maybe somebody's in a better mood or somebody's a little more inspired or whatever. No, it, we have to nail it right now and move on to the next song. So just speeding train mean, and you can we're so beyond uptight, it or not. <laughs> you know, yeah. uptight with each other trying to trying to get everything perfect you know i mean and for for us perfect wasn't wasn't um <laughs> precise it was more like <laughs> we wanted to have everything sound like some really exciting take that had some magical <laughs> you know, some magical moment happened that, that was just spontaneous and that we didn't predict, you know, and we were trying to get, you know, performance of every song that had something really magic like that happen in the middle of it. <laughs> um, you know, we're all listening to each other playing and um, reacting to each other and 
you know, like, yeah, we were, we really had a lot of fun reacting to each other. I think we had really nice chemistry, but, but, uh, it's hard. Well, whatever we, we had difficulty (laughs) under pressure, you know, I wouldn't say that we choked under pressure, but I would say it was hard, hard to take chances. You know, we wanted it sound like we were taking chances and having fun. (laughs) And of course, it's hard to sound like when you're having sounds. It's hard to sound like you're having fun when you're not having that much fun and you're actually (laughs) like biting your nails and like yeah. You, you have an imaginary clock in your head that's counting down. Yeah, it wasn't imaginary. It was a big no, clock, clock in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounded really, I mean, it was so cool to record in a studio. And then we got, for the first time ever, separate files that we could mix and, you know, spend the next year <laughs> mixing it at home and, um, you know, didn't have to, like, mix it that night or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We'd spend some time um, and... Uh, Wow, and that was that was like your what like your fifth album? I mean, technically, I guess so. I don't know. It depends how you count. Depends it. how you, you count it. Um, and that's like the first one you basically got to mix <laughs> the way you wanted to. Well, yeah. I mean, we mixed the four track records. The or two of the early records were on four track, and we we had plenty of time to mix them. Um, you know, you <laughs> years <laughs> to mix them on four track. But th- these this was a nicer recording because yeah. it was. Um, from a studio and that was just I don't know I don't know if it's nicer it was just different it wasn't something that that we'd ever done so it was a new experience like get a high fidelity recording um um or whatever what's considered a high fidelity recording um very clean and then um you know be able to figure it out at home um and and then we recorded all the vocals at home and (laughs) you know we lived on a noisy street in the tenderloin so there's a lot of um a lot of traffic noise fire engines way in the background of the tracks you know um that you can hear sometimes if you listen really closely (laughs) that's and that if i if i'm remembering right i think the the order the track order is slightly different on the record versus the uh, ah yeah the digital right was that probably i think it's different again well there wasn't a record actually it was cd only but then the a reissue was done only a few years ago. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Changed gotcha. the order a little bit. Um, because I remember the... I was listening to it. I was like, I thought this was later in the record. <laughs> wow. You're a super fan. <laughs> I like that record. I think that that's one of my favorite records of you guys. So I've, I've listened to it quite a bit. And, uh, but then I, I, th- I thought it was like one of those Berenstain Bears things, you know, where they, are you familiar what? with this concept? No. Oh, there's, oh, <laughs> geez. Well, well there's... Berenstain uh, no, no, I'm not. The the so there's this cartoon family of bears, a series of books called the Berenstain Bears. I mean that I remember, but what's the concept? Well, the idea is that like some people swear up and down that the spelling they remember oh. it differently, and this is like a parallel universe theory thing. Like exactly. it's sort of a it's a questioning what you see uh, metaphor. Yeah, no, I understand now. Yeah, uh, and it's. <laughs> It's actually the websites on it are are frankly incredible. If you ever just want to break from conspiracy theories that are terrible and awful and mundane, and we were, you know, we played once at CERN, you know, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. Oh, very wow. odd gig. Um, there's a physicist who works there, um, who 
was a longtime Deerhoof fan, and he he's like, you, we got to get you to come play here inside the 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 premises, you know, in some of the different rooms that we have where we store the super cooling, you know, uh, things and the other machines and just you know really bizarre. Um, but once we played there, <laughs> um, you know, the Large Hadron Collider has associated with it <laughs> a lot of conspiracy theories yeah, yeah, um, that proliferate online where people um, assume that it's a satanic um, attempt to cause a black hole where there once was a planet called Earth. Um, and once we played there, we became a topic of the conspiracy theories. And really? when I read them... <laughs> When I started reading how um, all of the different reasons that that Deerhoof is satanic, <laughs> I found myself convinced. I mean, it was a Berenstain Bears thing where a member of the target was actually kind of like, wow, you know, this is actually pretty convincing, <laughs> you know, plethora of evidence here that, that like... They present a strong you know, argument. <laughs> some strong arguments yeah maybe we are satanic so um yeah every album we've done since then has been you know to hail satan well yeah of course I mean, clearly uh wow holy moly that's 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 a there's a lot to unpack there um yeah well they did it they unpacked it there's also the theory that uh when they the higgs boson um was found that uh, yeah. the, the act of doing that actually created a parallel, a parallel world, oh, and where, and some people, of course, I think oh, you're you know, you're further up on this. Than I am even. Okay. I, get, I mean, I'm, I'm also kind of a nerd about physics, so <laughs> you know, and and, and the, you be a nerd on this many things, Conan. <laughs> hey man, follow your bliss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so, let's follow your bliss on to the next question. Yeah. Hey. hey so uh, all right, so Apollo, and and that's a it's it's a it's a well received record. Uh, it, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, actually it was. I I think that was the the height. I mean, I, in in their own ways, I think all of them, everything that we've done has been surprisingly well received. You know, far beyond my expectations. But that was one where um, <laughs> we got good online reviews and year end lists and stuff. And where that it was also a different era where that fact seemed to directly translate into more people coming to the show, you know, or more people buying yeah. the record. Yeah. You know, where I think I could be wrong, but sometimes it feels like now it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit more diffuse. And just because you get a good review. In fact, I would say right now. A good review means almost nothing, you know, and in those days, for whatever reason, at least in the realm, whatever realm we inhabited, you know, maybe it was indie rock or noise or, or you know, <laughs> whatever it was we were trying to do, underground music. Um, it seemed like reviews counted for a lot then. They were trusted more. They were read more widely. Um and uh, whatever I don't know. So so we did well with the critics for a couple of years, and that was 
I mean, we still do do well with a lot of critics, but, but there, there that was, was that, period that, that time that period. Mattered. Yeah, that early 2000s time period. There was like that moment where it kind of seemed like that's, you know, like a, a well, there was, well, there was almost a return to that, like Lester Bangsian style uh, form of writing as well. Yeah, where the writing is more important than the record. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And, but yeah. then by the same token, people would, would find out about, you know, for lack of, you know, more idiosyncratic or uh, unique bands that, that didn't sound like other things in a way that really, on a larger level, that it wasn't as large as, as, as like, <laughs> the early 90s or anything along those lines. But in a way that kind of, like, was like, oh, that's cool. They, they're, um, you know, there's there's people, like, finding out about this kind of music from, from all over, you know. And to me, where. to me, it was less about whether it was idiosyncratic. To me, what it was, was <laughs> it was a good time in terms of whatever critics. It was a good time if you were a band that had subtexts Nuance. you know yeah, it did yeah, context yeah. That, that did concept albums or that had hidden meaning in the lyrics or that that was you know <laughs> that seemed to give the impression that there was more than meets the eye you know yeah. and i think that was something that we were always really into you know with other records that we loved or with movies or whatever, you know, just hidden meaning or um, multi-layered or, you know, you could, you could sort of like, <laughs> I mean, you know, like if I was listening to Amnesiac, you know, you know, d during a couple of those years, it's like, you can sort of map those lyrics onto, well, is he talking about a romantic relationship or is he talking about his band yeah, or is yeah, it yeah. more political? You know, it's kind of like this, <laughs> like a fairy tale that, that seems to, to be both evocative, but also general enough that it applies to many life circumstances. And that was something that we were always like, <laughs> fancied ourselves as trying to do i mean we still do you know that we like the kind of uh <laughs> yeah whatever that that like the a record that might sound different to you when you listen to it again you know you hear different things or you interpret it a different way the second time or the third time or that at least that it rewards listening to it again and that's the kind of thing that's like, <laughs> you know, sort of like tailor made for music critics, you know. So it was like it was just a lucky coincidence that at the time that music criticism was at a kind of peak that we happened that they happened to discover us who was trying to do music that appealed to that kind of thinking or that, or that kind, kind of attentive of listening and, and uh, repeat listening <laughs> yeah, in a lot of cases exactly so well, i just think we got incredibly lucky you know we just uh it's just pure coincidence so then talk to me about uh the between apollo and milkman because milkman's a concept record uh of, of sorts <laughs> about right? milkman? yeah i mean it, it's uh well <laughs> say it again so isn't milkman a concept record because you mentioned concept records oh i mean of sorts know, to, i'm to me, all Deerhoof records are concept records. It's call me crazy. No, no, no. But that's... I'm <laughs> worse, worse than that. I'll call you idiosyncratic, <laughs> which I consider a compliment, by the way. Uh... <laughs> well, and, and I only bring it up because it's sort of like okay, that that's a very 
it's a very eye-catching cover, right? I mean, you guys always have very interesting covers, but the uh, um... yeah, our roommates, our roommates in San Francisco were were living in San Francisco for a year or two from Tokyo. It was Satomi's um, middle school friend, you know, her childhood friend had <laughs> um, married or whatever, you know, was was uh, romantically involved with a visual artist called Ken. And, you know, like he lived with us and, you know, he was our great friend. And, you know, we were always joking with each other. And, and um, he was hearing Deerhoof constantly and we were seeing his art all the time. He's a really, really funny person, really seri- uh, silly and, um, you know, just always making dirty jokes and just... Uh, <laughs> Just everything was sort of the grotesque and crude, um, you know, with him. And and his art was so funny. And uh, so, (laughs) you know, at some point, like, why don't you do the next album cover? And then we realized, why don't we have the album cover first and then make the record? Gotcha. Okay, cool. So it's almost like when you have a title and then you figure out the song with the song afterwards. Exactly. Okay, cool. So I don't know if that makes it more of a concept record. I mean, I don't. To me, it's like they're all kind of concept records if you want to think of them that way. Sure. That they're all grouped around a theme and stuff. But this is just one where we happen to have <laughs> a character first thing, you know. Well, and there's and in the liner notes, there's kind of like, you know, stuff about <laughs> that guy. And, uh, you know, like it's, it's it's sort of, I guess it liner depends on what notes. the listener no gets liner out of it. Notes. What are you talking about? <laughs> like the, uh, well, isn't there some kind of like. Uh, I don't remember. Well, I mean, there's, there's. I'm trying to write. I actually don't know that one on physical. <laughs> it's been years. Maybe I'm project. You know what? Maybe I'm. I put the lyric. I'm Berenstain Bearsing it. I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm remembering yeah. liner notes that did not exist. Yeah, the, you're remembering record. a triple gatefold. You know, <laughs> MTV music video campaign. And... <laughs> but yeah. that's also so. So that's and that's a. I think that's a really interesting, cool record. Also, that's also the first time there's like the electronic. Uh, drums and and kind of almost like synthy oh, yeah. stuff going on there. Was that something where was it was that a conscious choice? You were just like, hey, or was it like more like, hey, let's try this? I mean, we didn't have electronic drums. Um, we we there were <laughs> um, when when we were in Tiny Telephone recording mm-hmm. a couple of the songs on Reveille, they they had a. a ancient drum machine called the rhythm ace oh. that had really cool sounds. you know it's a coveted sound yeah and yeah. so we recorded the sound of the bass drum the, you couldn't get individual sounds on it but you could play some of the rhythm patterns you you play the merengue or whatever bossa nova really slow you know turn the speed all the way down and sometimes you'd get an isolated bass drum or an isolated tom or an isolated snare and so we recorded that so that we would have it and then for years afterwards we just used those that rhythm ace bass drum and that rhythm ace snare drum and that rhythm ace tom tom sound just pasting in pasting them in to to your recording program to just create a drum beat or whatever or, um, <laughs> we didn't have electronic drums we were, we were just pasting in these rhythm ace sounds oh wow you know? okay and so this is that i bet the, <laughs> okay. the uh, there's a song called um eyebright bugler on reveille that is those sounds pasted into a little drum beat and then there's um there's one on um one or two on milkman for sure um 
I think at the beginning of Desaparecere starts with <laughs> those uh, blips, you know, with those rhythm sounds. But those are just pasted in, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the <laughs> John really liked um, electronic music um, <laughs> or computer music, I should say. And so when he joined the band, he would sort of create <laughs> textures, I guess would be a good word sure. for it sometimes, <laughs> that ended up getting used on songs on Reveille and on Milkman um, that that definitely we had nothing that sounded anything like that before he joined the band. Um, and um, so that was fun, you know, we could like layer things. Uh, There's a lot of keyboard on um, Milkman. <laughs> uh, a lot of it was constructed in the computer. Like we did record ourselves one session. <laughs> Um, where we recorded some of the songs with live drums and live guitars and stuff. Um, but a lot of it is, is, you know, pasting, pasting drums from samples, pasting bass from sampled bass notes off of some record, you know, and the songs are sort of put together. Um, and even the, I remember the drums we recorded, <laughs> You know, maybe after we'd done Apollo and it's like, oh, it's really easy to record drums. You know, those drums sounded fine. So we can record our own now. And so we got back into DIY recording and then, of course, recorded them and everything sounded horrible. And <laughs> like the drums all sounded so thin and just like, uh. and so, you know, it became that's where we started getting into the, um, <laughs> you know, another time waster, which was. You know, here's the drum performance right. recorded with three microphones or two microphones or something. It doesn't sound good. What can we do? Well, I'll take this drum hit off of a Queen record or I'll take this drum hit off of a, you know, I don't know, you know, something recorded by Steve Albini or something, you know, it sounded really yeah. like big and powerful. And then paste, you know, sit there and paste. Um, every time I hit the snare, I'd paste in this drum. I'd line it up, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's way to waste a year of your life. You know? <laughs> and then, like I said, it's like when, when the record was all done and it sounded, you know, to our ears, like really slick and really fancy and and um, <laughs> sort of everything in its place and <laughs> kind of um, almost garish, you know, like. Um, with all the keyboards and, and, you know, it sounds like there's orchestras and, yeah, it does have a big sound. Yeah, it's, in a like, way. Yeah. it's just, it's just the result of pasting stuff. Um, <laughs> I had a really funny experience um, this year, actually. Um, well, one of the things that <clears throat> we did first on the, the or that, that we attempted first on Milkman was um, <laughs> via computer pasting, um, adding trumpet parts <laughs> to our songs. So there's a song called Milking yeah. that has quite a bit of trumpet on it. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anyone who played trumpet 
or we're too shy to ask anyone even if we did, or we thought it would be too expensive. <laughs> so we thought as a cost-cutting measure, we would sample trumpet off of a record um, <laughs> and you know, use you know, a bit of this note and a bit of that note and some pitch shifting and some fudging and finessing to try and make it sound like you know, a trumpet player was playing the trumpet part that we had in mind, right, you know, right, the specific right. melody that they're definitely not playing on their record. But we, you know, with a, enough samples and fudging and stuff, and it was really hard to find a record that had trumpet solo, yeah, not drums or other things. Yeah, with yeah. nothing, nothing, yeah. just trumpet, isolated trumpet notes. Um, and what we found was. <laughs> Um, what we used was a there was a duet record of Anthony Braxton on saxophone and Wadada Leo Smith on trumpet, um, and they they both played in such a way. Wadada especially is very known for playing in such a way that he leaves an incredible amount of space. Right. Yeah. And the record's recorded in this incredibly dry. You know, it's not a concert hall. It's a, they didn't add reverb. You know, it's just like this totally dead sounding room or studio or whatever. <laughs> And they play this incredibly minimal music. So there's lots of chance to <laughs> find isolated trumpet notes. So that's how I constructed that. That was the first time. And then for years afterwards, I kept using Wadada uh, trumpet samples to construct trumpet parts for <laughs> records. And then uh, later in life, we performed <laughs> with Wadada Leo Smith in concert oh, um, wow. <laughs> and, and in 2020 a record our live record came out this past summer that we put out to benefit black lives matter yeah. um yeah. and it's on Bandcamp. and uh <laughs> we didn't we did an interview much like this one um uh, uh you know for some online interview or whatever after the record came out <laughs> and two years after we had played the show together so we were kind of reuniting conversation and i hadn't even had a chance to tell him <laughs> the night of the show because it was you know frantic and you know yeah, you busy things in your mind blah, sure. blah, blah. we were yeah. playing a show you know I finally got to tell him, you know, how we've been using his trumpet samples <laughs> for years to construct our trumpet parts or whatever. And it was so funny to reveal it so many years after the fact. But well, yeah, what was his reaction to it? Did, did he kind of get what you were? <laughs> oh, you know, like his reaction to everything. Yeah. Just, you know, uh, such cool, um, kind of like nothing surprises him. <laughs> you know, he would laugh and uh, he would, be, you know... <laughs> just be he's like ready for anything i mean that that person has has taught us and you know for those familiar with his music or who've ever had a chance to work with him you know as a student or a, or a performer in one of his groups or whatever so much about how music can be a practice for not just music but a practice for being a life form on the planet, you know, and and how to accept whatever comes um, when when you're playing music that involves, um, you know, people doing something other than just playing their part, you know, yeah. and there's room for the spontaneous, then <laughs> being ready for anything. It was in, and, you know, that's one of the reasons 
that um, that it was a, such a treat to play with him. And, you know, what ended up coming out on this live record this year, you know, just that, <laughs> like, <laughs> he even he even deliberately showed up late and missed soundcheck so that so that to you know in order to prevent him knowing what we were going to play <laughs> he didn't wow. know our songs at all so wow. off on stage in the right mindset and deerhoof starts playing their songs right you know m- much of the audience knows deerhoof songs deerhoof knows deerhoof songs Wadada has never heard them in his life. And he starts playing in a way that's so powerful and so expert and so kind of <laughs> commanding that the Deerhoof must adjust on the spot. So he's rewriting the song on the spot and, and forcing us, you know, he has that presence that that says we're slowing down now. Now we're going to get quiet. Now we're changing to this feel. And 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 the four of us, um, you know, John, Ed, Satomi, and me, ha- suddenly hearing our own song fresh for the first time and and playing them in some way that totally unlike we had ever played them before, you know, <laughs> and how exciting that was that he had taught us something about ourselves, about our own music, you know, and how profound, you know, of an experience, um, you know, so grateful. Um, It was just another, it was another really lucky and unexpected case of meeting a musical hero, you know, kind of like the Bowie thing. It just, you never expect it. (laughs) You never dream it. And, and, uh, he did that really cool record with Henry Kaiser. That was like the Miles Davis, uh, um, like exactly. The 70s yeah, Miles Davis. I forget what it was called. Yeah. Oh, Yo Miles. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that was a band imagine. that he had for years. Yeah, maybe he still does. I don't know. Yeah, it's a. That's that's awesome. I, I like how he's just kind of nonplussed about you <laughs> taking his <laughs> taking his uh, stuff and and uh, for, forensically reassembling it <laughs> in your <laughs> album. That's kind of awesome. Oh, uh, man. That was Milkman. That was Green Cosmos, too. That was the next thing that we put out as kind of a mini album. It was like maybe 25 minutes long or something. Not quite a full album, but, um, you know, that one we recorded with Eli Cruz over in Oakland. Uh, was that that new improved, improved, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But still, even that, you know, even that, again, recorded like in one afternoon or something really fast and kind of like, ah. Like th- these sounds need some help, you know, <laughs> and just spending so much time pasting in samples, pasting in. Right. I mean, I think Green Green Cosmos is where we hit hit the climax of that, um, of of pasting in samples, um, and just the the sort of tedious. I mean, now a lot with you know. And maybe even then, but we just couldn't afford it, and we or didn't know about it. But um, it's definitely much easier now. <laughs> like now, there's a program. Yeah, now, exactly. Now there's things. Replace your drum sounds. You just press a button, and you've replaced your drum sound with any drum sound you can you can afford. There's you know? a workflow, and like what you did in a year, you could you know do in like five minutes with <laughs> a few uh, menus, yeah. right? <laughs> but that's just it, Conan. 
the, I have to say, it wouldn't quite be the same. No, absolutely it, not. No. There is a workflow that would, quote unquote, on paper, do something basically the same thing, which is replace drums or add samples to drums, you know, or add a lower octave to the bass or, you know, whatever kind of stuff. Or, you know, pull down some menu of like uh, a percussion loop in the background that you can play along with. But but there's something <laughs> for better or worse, you know, there was a quality that results from having to do it in a sort of handmade style and one sample at a time and like lining up the waveforms so that they're in phase and, you know, um, oh, maybe not on this one hit. This one hit sounds cool without the sample and making a separate decision on every single hit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, and it was just like, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, if I heard Green Cosmos now, I think that a lot of what I'd hear, like it sounds very glitzy and fun and layered, but it also sounds, you know, I, I don't know. It was, it was like a, a very tedious, um, time-consuming um, labor of love, you know, process. Well, I'm thinking of that. There's, I can't remember the song right now, but there's a Queen record where to emulate <laughs> the sound of an orchestra, mm. they recorded a single guitar note just like yeah. an absurd amount of times uh, because they had, you know, all the time yeah. in the world to record a record and they could just do that. But, I mean, he overdubbed single note guitar stuff on tons of songs. But yeah, know? but but if you listen to it, it it actually it sounds like an orchestra, but uh, but it's it sounds different <laughs> because obviously that's a that's a crazy right. way to do that. Why don't you just get an orchestra? Right. right. But yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah he's but, got that infinite sustain, you know. Yeah, yeah. Compressed guitar, so he can sort of hold a note, maybe feeding back, and so like a a string player or something, you you can sort of hold a note infinitely. Um, and then just, <laughs> and then he had that obviously that very eccentric kind of tone, you know, that that had a lot of a lot of sizzle to it. Yeah, that's kind of like a bow across a string, you know. And so when it when it's just holding infinitely, you can imagine it sounding a bit like a cello or something. And uh, and then you just like overdub, <laughs> uh, you know, a whole bunch of those so that you get um um. I mean, my record was always um, with uh, News of the World. Of the world I think yeah. that was my first LP, actually, when I was a child. That was my very first record. The uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, the album cover used to scare me. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> which I think it's awesome now. But <laughs> and I, you know, it's just kind of like I I couldn't for the life of me understand. Like I heard, we will rock you, and we are the champions on the radio, which was a which was at least where I lived, um, was always played as a twofer. Yeah, like which together. Was, which yeah. was so, so bizarre, you know, is like you played the single, which meant you played both sides of the single right. <laughs> in a row every time. Sure. It was wild, you know, and I loved it so much and had the record. And um, I think my babysitter gave me the record, actually. That's amazing. <laughs> I didn't want it anymore. And... Uh, I couldn't for life of me figure out why a band that made such great music, one would do such a ugly cover or just a, you know, horrific, you know, sort of, um, it's like uh, a sci-fi book, I think. Disgusting. Right? Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it was gory and, you know, bloody and, 
and the band is dead on it. You know, scare the hell out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> exactly. You know, I freaked out. So why? Why would they do that? And then the other thing I couldn't understand is why they would do a song called "Sheer Heart Attack," which comes right after um, uh, "We Are the Champions." So it's the next song. You know, I'm listening, to, bopping along to my two favorite songs as a kid, and then this song um, <laughs> that I just despised. Um, sheer heart it, was like, it was like fast it sounds like a rock and roll by Led Zeppelin but it's yeah. kind of like a little bit punk rock you it know is. maybe just right before punk rock became a big thing you know really up tempo super fast just kind of like you know it's almost just one A chord through the whole song you know really distorted guitars and and um, <laughs> and it just seemed so rude and uh, I, I just couldn't as a kid i could not figure out why they would do this and i remember oh, my mom had some whiteout um and for a little while i was obsessed with whiteout i thought it was so cool that i could erase like something that i had typed on the typewriter with whiteout yeah. and um and i actually took the lp and i whited out the song i, I wanted the song i hated it so much i wanted it to disappear from existence so radically that i whited out the song i was attempting to delete it from the lp and uh <laughs> and of course as as these things do you know in life um and music is always a great case of how this ha can happen where the song that you hate the most at first becomes the song that you love the most later and of yeah. course your heart attack is one of my absolute favorite songs um in the universe now and and um and a, and a, a real Deerhoof model, you know, for like how to make stuff sound. And uh, <laughs> like I said, you know, many, <laughs> many an hour uh, was spent pasting in uh, Queen, you know, Roger Taylor, you know, Queen snare drum samples <laughs> right, exactly. into yeah, yeah. Uh, Deerhoof songs to make it sound more like Queen, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there's there's one hit. There's one place on that record, it's in Get Down, Make Love, where there's a drum fill that happens without anyone playing, where he just hits the, the oh, snare yeah. drum, yeah. You know, bum, 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 and then the band comes crashing in. And so that's the perfect place to grab a single snare hit. And that one queen snare hit, I mean, I can't tell you how many Deerhoof songs <laughs> have had their snare drum beefed up by that, by that one hit of Roger Taylor, you know, that one yeah. swing of his arm has like been years of, <laughs> of uh, dear hope content, you know. Well, if you, if you ever run into, if you ever run into him, you can, you've got a to great Roger icebreaker. Taylor. Yeah. yeah Roger <laughs> uh, I mean, he knows it. I mean, he knows how many bands have been influenced. And, I'm sure. And yeah. I mean, that's not going to mean a thing to him, you know. But I think it's fascinating that, uh, you know, I, I think the, the the way that you assembled that record and the way that you kind of painstakingly went in, uh, note, note by note, hit by hit even, uh, as yeah. as labor intensive as it is, it makes it a very unique sounding record. Like it, it's, a, it's a record that... Thank you. Uh, you know, it's it, first of all, it's good. So, I mean, we'll start there. But like it's, it's, it's unique. Like they, because, just based on the method of... I guess you would call it production, but it's just yeah. It's like... you can barely call it production I mean, <laughs> because there was there was another aspect in when in Milkman and and the EP uh... EP Green Cosmos. Cosmos yeah. I, I, I'm sitting here telling you, come see the duck. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you how much it was all about 
layer after layer after yeah. layer. But we were using the free version of Pro Tools as our music recording software at the time. Um, we could not afford Pro Tools. And so we used, there was a free version you could download. And um, the problem with this free version is eight tracks maximum. That's it. So what that meant, <laughs> what that meant is, yeah, you, 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 I mean, when eight tracks is still a lot, but once you're trying to pile on, probably the song that has the most, the biggest pile is the song Green Cosmos. No, that's not true. Maybe there's one called um, <laughs> Spiral Golden Town. <coughs> It was another one that had trumpets, <laughs> um, you know, pitch shifted, you know, sampled trumpets or whatever. It's all yeah, constructed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Both of those, you know, so many layers. And the problem was, at least, you know, working on it at the time, the problem was once you hit eight tracks, you had to bounce it down to two. Yeah. And you could add six more and then bounce it down and then you could add six more. So then it was impossible to go back. Yeah, you better be darn sure of the stuff that you, you bounced down, though, because it's <laughs> or, not or I defeated it because room was running out on my computer. So, uh, you know, it was coming back to this thing of I had this stereo bounce that after listening to it for four months, I realized this stereo bounce isn't good. It doesn't good. I, I wish I could have mixed it a different way, but now I can't. And so I've got to cover it up in some way or, or doctor it in some way to to hide its flaws or beef up its its thinness or you know whatever it was so <laughs> that was another part of it it wasn't like we had some like we, it wasn't like we were prints in a you know in a giant studio with an infinite number of tracks you know we had an infinite number of tracks but but only if you kept bouncing down and uh and so you were stuck with it, whatever mix you had were in the mood to make that day <laughs> you know um <laughs> i don't know i think that that Again, you know, we kind of hit a wall on Green Cosmos. We need to do something different. This is too, <laughs> you know, why can't – it's like when we would go on tour, it would be so fun to play the songs. It wasn't painstaking at all. It was the opposite of painstaking. It was pure joy to play. Why can't we get that joy on the record? And so that's why we're like, okay, we are not doing this anymore. We're not going to do this. <laughs> we are going to rent a rehearsal. We're going to stop doing these makeshift recordings too. We're going to stop doing this thing where we record the whole record in one afternoon and then, you know, suffer for the following year trying to fix every flaw, you know, that that, that one afternoon produced. <laughs> We're going to take our time. We're going to rent a practice space and in Oakland, you know, <laughs> one of the, it was one of those uh, ones in West Oakland where, um, you know, where there's a 200 practice yeah, room. Yeah, like uh, that would have been Soundwave at the time, I think. I think it was Soundwave, yeah. yeah. So that we moved into Soundwave. We moved all our instruments into Soundwave. We had a monthly thing, and we stayed in there for about, you know, five months. And we went in there like, you know, I don't know, whatever, like a regular job. I and mean, we were at least 40 hours a week. We'd, every morning, we'd get on the BART. You know, we get a show up first thing in the morning. Everybody's so tired. And we just start panning on the drums. Okay, what's your idea? And it was the four. It was Chris and John and, and Satomi and me. And, and uh, <laughs> I re seem to remember that it was over the winter as well. And I, I admit, yes, I admit that Bay Area winters are not <laughs> – you're living in <laughs> the Midwest now, so you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Studying you know, Not the harshest winter ever, but still. <laughs> it was cold, 
and um, and it was a windowless room. It was you know a strange place to spend uh, five months um, of your life, but. Um, it's stranger and, when it's empty than when there's like 20 minutes playing, yeah. you know? It's, it's kind yeah, of true. Has an eerie sort of feel to it. Yeah, I mean, it was eerie and, you know, had only each other for company for most of that time. And uh, just obsessively retaking songs um, again and again and again. And, um, and just recorded so much stuff that's why it ended up being double record the runners for it was 100 percent recorded in that in that practice space and has a really sort of crappy dead sound on the drums but one of the reasons that the guitars sound so nice (laughs) and it was it was uh, chris cohen switched to bass and satomi switched to guitar so the guitars are satomi and john and one of the reasons the guitar sounds so nice is that we bought <laughs> those amp simulators um, we oh, were so sure. sick of failing yeah. to, you know so sick of failing to record good guitar sounds you know years of just like not ever feeling like the guitar sounded you know we couldn't ever get a recording of a guitar sound that sounded as good as it sounded in real life it seemed like we just couldn't do it. And we were like, let's just buy a pod, you know? Yeah. So we got this amp sandwich. So, so we were all on headphones and John and Satomi <laughs> were plugged into pods <laughs> um, and getting simulated amp tones. And so then you're, you're in headphones and you could, we didn't have to record a crappy sound and then spend a year mix it. We could spend the time first getting the sound and we would design really, really unusual, I mean, what we thought were unusual, really fun guitar sounds um, with strange delays and wah-wah pedals and all this stuff, you know, that we didn't have, but it was in this simulator and, uh, and just record it straight in the computer like that. And then that's the sound. And then you didn't have to mess with it so much. Um, you didn't have to cover it up. And it was just like, that's the sound. And, and so, so in a way, that was really a pleasure um, but, uh, <laughs> we also, you know, started to get at each other's throats, um, instead of recording in one afternoon and feeling stressed out, it would be all day, every day, uh, yeah, to put, get... put that stress <laughs> in a payment plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that became the last thing that we did with Chris yeah. and, um, uh, <laughs> We toured after it, actually. I mean, so that wasn't the last. That was the last record that we recorded, but it wasn't the last thing we did. We we toured, and it was always really, you know, it was fun to play those songs. Um, but it was, you know, it was the same. It was just, um, I mean, and I think Chris maybe understood that better. Well, no, actually, Satomi did too. I th- I think it was me who understood it the worst. Um, but I, I think that Chris, <laughs> um, <laughs> he came into the band saying, guys, what are you doing? Come on. This record already sounds fine. Put it out. I'm talking about Rev. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and by the end of runners four, <laughs> you know, had kind of fully, he might tell the story differently, but my, my interpretation is that. He, you know, <laughs> ended his time in Deerhoof having fully converted to the obsessive overworking. The other way around, yeah. 
around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not the other way around. We were all in it together. And uh, I think that part of it was realizing, you know, can't can't the process be a little bit whatever the process can be whatever it is but can't i have a few more hours to live you know to just to just have a little bit more of a life and not devote <laughs> i mean everybody can do a, a residency or they can do a thing you know a retreat or something where you say i'm going to forget everything i'm going to a monastery and i'm going to live like a monk for 2 weeks Right. You know, and put the rest of my life aside and focus on this. But when you've done that now continuously for, you know, whatever, five years straight, which was the time that he was in the band approximately, um, <laughs> you know, he was ripe. It was too much um, obsession. And there were sacrifices getting made. And, you know, I just remember like, I'll go to the grocery store and get food later. You know, I've got to get this mix right. And I feel like it's almost right. And, um, you know, it's like, it's a pleasure to go back and listen to those records, but I'll be honest, you know, it, it, sometimes it, 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 uh, I, it, it, I get a little bit tearful remembering those times because it's just, I, I feel like such a fool, you know, and, and, uh, Chris and I still talk about it sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's like the records sound really cool, but it was like a dark path in a way. And, and it became almost darker over time because <laughs> Deerhoof was doing this in part because we had no budget because we couldn't sell very many records and and or at least we didn't <laughs> we didn't want to ask labels it was kill rock stars at the time for all of those um <laughs> for an advance like other bands do you know oh we want a recording advance because we really needed the expenses to be low so that we had some hope of making an income from the record after the fact and <clears throat> and so we're like no no advance. Uh, we're going to do this all ourselves. And what we <laughs> could have spent money to have a producer or a helper, you know, um, to do it better, um, we're going to just do it. We're going to substitute time, hours, you know, we're going to substitute hours. And the thing is, what Chris and I, what Chris pointed out to me um, years later, which I think he's really right, is that the the idea of the DIY band that records on a $0 budget finishes a record and then sends it to a label and says, hey, you want to put this, put this out, has become the norm. That's become expected, is that it's the band's responsibility right, yeah. to shoulder all costs and all effort, and that, that, that Anything beyond that is considered like, oh, only celebrities, you know, get a budget, you know. Yeah, what's up, Rockefeller? <laughs> feels, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Chris feels a little bit guilty that that Deerhoof was one of the causes of this <laughs> change of paradigm that that because we volunteered to do everything for free, that 
that beca- that labels began to not. I mean, obviously, it's not just because of Deerhoof, but that we were just part of a movement that ended up resulting in labels expecting bands to do everything for free. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, it is funny to when you talk about you know shifts in culture and how things have changed. Yeah. You're right. It's sort of like there's almost this. Oh, you don't record, you know, most of your stuff. Like, oh, why not? Why wouldn't you just learn to go do that? And you know, you want to go into a studio? Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I mean, well, yeah, I want it to sound good. I've got a vision for this. Come on. Uh, yeah. Which isn't to say that home recordings can't sound good. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that it's interesting that like to watch that shift, being like, oh, kind of like. You know, push push your you know your uh, put your th- uh, nose up at ugh, yeah. home recording whatever to be like no of course everybody does that now it's pretty much what we knew and I just remember at the time feeling very depressed about it um, I would always be happy with the record like I said I mean I thought the record we you know, we loved our records I mean we didn't <laughs> deem them finished until we loved them but but. We, I remember feeling depressed, like I am spending year after year teaching myself the most useless, <laughs> non-transferable skills. Computer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, keystrokes on the computer in Pro Tools or, or like how to make, how to make Satomi's voice sound good in a Deerhoof mix, you know, all this stuff that seems completely irrelevant to the rest of the universe, you know? And I'm like, boy, I'm I'm teaching myself useless skills. And it's been in more recent years that I think, um, <laughs> you know, especially John and Chris and me, who were the most involved with the sort of, you know, recording, engineering, mixing, mastering, minutiae that we were all like just hitting ourselves over the head like what are we doing we are wasting our lives learning this stuff that it's become there's been some relief in recent years where (laughs) we've all started to record or mix or master other people's music and people have started hiring us to do that or we do it for friends, um, for free or whatever. Like, and we realize, well, maybe it wasn't for nothing. We're gonna make it not be for nothing because we're gonna <laughs> share, you know, whatever totally self-taught, you know, backwards workaround kind of skills that we taught ourselves over those years. We're gonna, we're going to <laughs> spread them and we're gonna make use of them and yeah. and try to bring some benefit. <laughs> to someone besides ourselves, you know, for, for having non-transferable skills that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. They seemed non-transferable, but they turned out to be transferable. Yeah. Yeah. Has been a really gratifying life change. You know, we couldn't see it at the time. (laughs) Right. Of course, because it's, you know, (laughs) later on down the line, it it becomes uh, more apparent. So, so then Chris, Chris leaves the group. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, Chris left and uh, we had, uh, you know, John's old friend, Ed Rodriguez. Uh, John had played in Ed uh, in bands with Ed, two different bands with Ed in, back in Minneapolis. Yep. Um, 
called uh, and like skin graft uh, bands. Great band, actually. We all knew Ed really well. He had moved to the Bay Area and, uh, you know, he was our friend. We saw him all the time. And, and you know, um, actually, we had been on tour with him when Chris was in the band because we'd done a Europe tour where Deerhoof was opening for Gorge Trio, which was John, that's Ed, and this guy, yeah, Chad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that now. It was Deerhoof's first European tour. I, something was, really... Which was basically, if I remember right, it was, it was most, most of Colossomite, right? Like it was it most everyone from Colossomite. Uh... <laughs> well, this was Gorge Trio, which was like a spinoff of Colossomite that was even more obscure. Yeah, no, Gorge Trio, because I saw Gorge Trio, but I remember it being the Coloss- like most of the guys from Colossomite. Played in Gorge yeah, it was three out of four yeah, out of four. It was, four. It was, it was, it was minus right? the vocalist. Yeah, so yeah. it was just instrumental. And uh, a really I think I saw with you guys, actually, actually, now that I think about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we, <laughs> the first time I saw them was when we were opening for them um, on this European tour in 2000, probably 2003. It was Apollo tour. And... Um, you know, Chris was still pretty new in the band, and uh, we were on tour in Europe in February, really cold. Ed took video every night of oh, wow. Deerhoof wow. on that tour. And since 2003, 17 years, we have been pestering Ed Rodriguez, my one of my best friends, my bandmate, <laughs> one of my closest friends. Ed, when are you going to digitize those stupid videos? You know, I want to see what that tour looked like. Yeah, and he finally like did it last week. He no did way. it last week. Oh, that's awesome. And he sent it. That's awesome. And I'm looking, at these, I'm looking at these videos now after 17 years. And all I remember at the time was, I'm really sad he videotaped this because we're playing terrible every night. And I'm watching <laughs> these videos and they're so funny. And there, there's actually, I mean, they're really, really fun to watch. And um, <laughs> I'm making an edit of like, you know, kind of like we were playing more or less the same set list every night, but I'm trying to like find the best version of Panda and yeah. the yeah. best version of Dummy Discards a Heart and the best version of Come See the Duck and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> well, it, wasn't, these, it uh, wasn't like how it is now where everyone just has you know, a, a, exactly. an amazing video yeah. camera in your pocket that takes like high definition video. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a little more of a rare thing no. back then. But the weird thing is that for some reason, a lot of cell phone video stuff that you see online, I, you know, I see it on YouTube. The sound is often really blown out and terrible, yeah. but the sound is not so distorted on these. Um, I'll probably eat my words if I ever put any of this online. <laughs> be like, what are you talking about? So, yeah, <laughs> but it, for some reason it doesn't sound as bad as the stuff that's recorded on itself. Like a really loud band. Yeah, on any itself. loud band with uh, just concert video, it's it gen- unless they have some kind of outside mic or something, it generally sounds pretty bad. I or yeah, if they if they have a way to control the input, maybe Ed had a input, a sound input uh, knob on his video camera or something. Yeah, but... that's probably it. That's probably it. <laughs> it's really funny, grainy videos. Anyway, so yeah, so any in any case. Um, we already knew Ed well, and we had been on tour with him. We were all in the same van on that tour, so we knew we could right. get along with him. There was no question. So um, we did. Um, well, actually, first we did another. Right? We did, did friend, friend opportunity, opportunity right? Yeah. Trio. Yeah. So um, 
I guess we struggled through that for a while <laughs> as a three-piece. I don't know what we were thinking, but... Well, I guess Ed was busy. He was playing in XBXRX. He was playing Flying Newton, Flying Ludenbachers. He wasn't available. He was pretty busy around that time. Now that you say that aloud. Yeah. That's why we didn't ask him is because he wasn't available. So Deerhoof, I mean, one of the incredible things in my, you know, reminiscences of, of that time um, around 2007 um, <laughs> when Friend Opportunity came out and we were playing those songs on tour one of the things that well as we were finishing runners four we got a random email (laughs) uh saying would you be available to open for radiohead and and we had some difficulty actually figuring out if that was going to be possible and (laughs) um (laughs) and uh we and then Radiohead was like, never mind, we've got too much gear and we're playing kind of smaller stages than we normally play, which of course was like, you know, For uh, them is like yeah. <laughs> Greek theater, you yeah, know, exactly. like Biggest shows in the world for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but for them, it was a slight underplay yeah. um, that yeah. was going to sell out overnight or whatever. And uh, they're like, there's no room for another band. And Chris had just quit. And we're like basically wrote back an email it's just three of us john's got a single 12 inch cabinet uh the drums are um the bass drum of a pearl rhythm traveler which is you know five inches deep or something and one snare drum and that's it and then um (laughs) we, we can set up in the front four feet of the stage <laughs> if you have if you have four feet empty in the front of the stage we we'll can do, do it, it radiohead <laughs> and then they and then they wrote back and said okay you're on and uh you know we drove in uh to the first show which was berkeley um greek theater in a uh, in a prius <laughs> the, uh, the, awesome. oh, the backstage uh, load-in area they didn't believe we we're like no we're the opening band you know radiohead obviously has a lot of obsessed fans who are trying to sneak in and we're like no we're not we're we're, we're the band you know and they wouldn't let us in <laughs> they couldn't believe we were a band in that car and uh um, <laughs> where's your crew where's your <laughs> we where's rented your we rented a prius for the tour That's we a rented a prius. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think none of us had cars. Maybe John had a car, but he didn't trust it to make it all the way to San Diego or something. So we rented a Prius for the tour. And uh, yeah, it was was, uh, an incredible experience where the, the, the band that you had been unfavorably comparing yourself to and trying to master your, (laughs) master your records to and that you had done so much um, self-destructive, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, psychological, you know, imposter syndrome, um, negative comparisons to, um, you know, to musicians who you thought were better than you um, <laughs> turn out to be watching you from the side of the stage every night and going crazy and and that it was you know i mean it was just very touching and and again kind of surreal 
moment where you realize <laughs> that in years where, you know, I, I'm not going to say that Deerhoof's only purpose was to match up to Radiohead. It was not our only purpose. But among the many things that we were trying to do was trying to create musical responses to some of our favorite music. And... Uh, <laughs> um, um, particularly, you know, current music. And two of our biggest um, musical heroes were The Roots and Radiohead, and, and we were always listening to their music and, and comparing ourselves to it. And, and to think that, like, even if they didn't hear us, you know, we were trying to write music that somehow responded to their music and one-upped it, you know? Um, we imagined ourselves, you know, as as being in conversation with them, right. even though that was a, a ridiculous, absurd fantasy. And then at some point, those fantasies, it turned they turned out to be true and that they were hearing our responses to, to their music. And then they were making music. And I, I can't say for sure that any particular Roots song or Radiohead song is, you know, reminiscent of Deerhoof, but sometimes I, you know... <laughs> think i hear it you know yeah, now yeah, and again yeah, yeah. Um, sure of course and nothing happens a song in a vacuum bangers and mash bangers and mash on the record that they did right after that tour um uh in rainbows uh, that, that it's not on in rainbows it's on the in rainbows kind of extra disc or whatever but bangers and mash it was one they were playing a lot on that tour really cool song and, oh, yeah, i always kind of wondered if maybe you know it was, it was a little bit of a deer hoof imitation <laughs> yeah um but, you know, just, yeah, and, and to realize, um, you know, in person, um, they, they, weren't, <laughs> they weren't the Mount Rushmore, you know, or they weren't the ogres um, that I might have imagined that they were so funny and so sweet and so kind and helpful. I mean, on tour, I mean, every day we were just, <laughs> John's pedal would break or, you know, I mean, my drums were taped together with duct tape and we're sitting there playing gigantic audiences and it's Radiohead audiences too, so they're listening. It's not like yeah. they're just milling yeah. around going to the bathroom, drinking beer. It's like, you know, they're like... Attentively listening <laughs> to every yeah. note. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> listening to every note. So we're just like up there, like trying so hard to... <laughs> to not like bomb and uh, <laughs> and stuff's breaking and like it's not just the band i mean the the radiohead crew was like also watching our show like hawks and like something would go wrong with john's guitar and like johnny greenwood's guitar tech would run out onto the stage and like fix it <laughs> right right oh that's like, awesome what is happening right now you know yeah <laughs> and then at the end of that short tour of california they invited us on another leg in europe and uh and um and we couldn't afford to bring someone to mix our sound so so their <laughs> front of house sound who you know by now knew all our songs by heart and everything yeah seen uh, every night sure he mixed us no problem you know that's awesome and it was like awesome. brilliant and then johnny greenwood did our light show on the one <laughs> indoor show that we did at the that's end of awesome. that in amsterdam the heineken music hall he put on a hoodie so that no one would recognize him and stood back at the at the light board and, and he knew every one of our songs i mean it was that's we've amazing. never Never had a light show like that because he knew exactly when it was going to yeah. kick into this part when the whole audience 
was totally lost, you know, and he'd throw on the strobe at, you know, at just the right moment. And yeah. when you go in a fast part or something. And there was another show where we, where we were, we, there was a day off in the Radiohead tour and we booked a show of our own in a tiny club in Edinburgh. <laughs> and we had had sound check. Um, we were frazzled, stressed, you know, um, we went out quick dinner. We didn't have much time. We had to get back to the show. Um, <laughs> yeah. We were illegally parked on this cobblestone <laughs> street in Edinburgh, and we felt like we had to get back in a hurry. We went to this restaurant. We're like, oh, no, they don't have anything vegetarian for us. And we, we suddenly just sheer luck looked up, and there was a sign vegan you know restaurant we're like thank goodness and we walked in we're like quick let's order something we walk back sit at a table and there <laughs> are johnny greenwood tom york and one of their tour managers <laughs> eating at this eating dinner at this vegan restaurant right and uh and we go and sit down what in the world are you guys doing here <laughs> and <laughs> and uh tom rolls his eyes and says, well, Johnny is playing this like Irish music gig tonight. Um, and he roped me into coming watch to watch. And then Johnny rolls in his eyes and said, well, actually, <laughs> actually, it was this other guy who roped me into doing the Irish music gig and I don't really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, well, have fun. You know, we're playing, you know, down the street at this other place. Um, you know, we had a nice little visit and it was just like so funny and just out of the blue. And then we go play this show and <laughs> we think we're not playing very well. And, you know, we think we're not having such a good show, but man, there's a ruckus happening in the audience. It's like almost like a mosh pit, you know, <laughs> like man, I didn't know we had these kind of fans in Edinburgh. Yeah, uh, it wasn't it Edinburgh, it was in Dublin. I'm having it wrong. We were in Ireland. Um, it was in Dublin. I'm, I remembered it incorrectly. Edinburgh was the next day. That's why it was an Irish music gig. We were in Dublin. And, um, you know, we'd never been to Ireland. And uh, But then we looked down. After a few songs, we realized what was going on. It was Tom York dancing like a madman <laughs> to our show. He had, he had bailed on the Irish music gig. And our show said, and was the only person in the audience who knew how our songs went and um, he was opening the pit up. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Awesome. And so he was like crashing into people and, and just like, <laughs> it was so funny. And after the show, we went back to the merch table and he was like, they're like totally drenched in sweat. He's like, Oh, I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> <laughs> Such a funny person. Anyways, very, very, every one of them very sweet and uh, you know, a great memory from, from friend opportunity era, but it was that tour. I mean, not just the Radiohead shows, but all the shows where we attempted to play those songs as a trio were a real struggle. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just like the the new songs. The songs on the record had so many keyboards and you know, yeah, there's layers. a lot of layers to it. There's only three people <laughs> going through his mind trying to cover everything at once. Yeah. <laughs> And some songs that Tommy wanted to dance, so he was having to do the bass on the guitar plus the guitar parts on the guitar plus keyboard parts. It was really funny. Um, at, quickly, you know, quickly we were like, we need to get a guitar player. And just by sheer miracle, Ed suddenly quit 
both of his bands. We're like, what? Really? He's available? And we're like, you know, we had a a three-way, you know, we had a band meeting, you know. (laughs) Should we ask Ed into the band? And five minutes later, we were decided that definitely we're getting Ed in the band. And then Ed, I mean, John called up Ed, hey, do you want to go out to dinner tomorrow? And then, you know, 24 hours later, Ed was in the band. And then, you know, it's just been like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was 2008, 12 years ago. I was going to say, it's been on top of worked out. <laughs> worked out so well. I mean, I don't know. We've just all become so much closer. And and uh, I just, you know, Ed brought a, well, I don't know. Ed Ed is different than, than anyone else and different from us. And I don't know what the difference is, but it's just, um, um, he immediately was very fun on stage and Tony had someone um, that she could interact with a little more. Yeah. The, um, the, the live vibe uh, speaking as somebody from the outside of it, the, the live yeah. vibe became more of a, sh- a show almost. If that says, yeah. that, like, Not that it wasn't a show before, but meaning that it was, yeah, but it's more, different. I mean, there was, there was a showiness to it that, that had, that Ed picked up on from Satomi and added, but he always had, I mean, that was always part of his thing too. He always dressed up in suits when he played with Ludenbachers or something. And, uh, you know, eventually he started sewing his own outfits and every tour he'd have a new outfit. Um, and he, you know, he still does that. And <laughs> we'd always be like, I can't wait to see what he came up with this time. And we'd find, he'd be, literally be sewing <laughs> after sound check, he wasn't done with it. I didn't realize he made them himself. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, That's amazing. he'd walk on stage, and we would finally see for the first time what his outfit was going to be for this tour. It's like totally insane. Um, you know, his his he always says that the first show he ever saw was Liberace. He went with his mom to see um, a Liberace show that had. It was one of these where. He, um, he was doing classical hits like Blue Danube Waltz and stuff like that, but it had fountains on stage, that fountains that were timed to go with the music. And uh, <laughs> I think ever since, um, and it, 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 it seems to be kind of true, ever since then, um, <laughs> you know, he's sort of just very glammed out. And yeah. very, um, you know, and there's something of the the pleasure in being somewhat artificial about you know i think that put it this way dear Huff, i mean when i look at pictures of me rob and satomi in 1995 it's like it was as far from glam as you can get uh nothing was artificial everything was so earnest and you know it was just jeans t-shirt flannel you know whatever it is like not thinking about that just in sound world audio world only thinking about the music and and um but it's it's more than that it's not just a a, a negation of visuals because because both satomi and and rob were and are visual artists who did think visually but it had more to do with <laughs> the always earnest and direct approach that we tended to take with everything at the time and the secretive um, approach that we took to everything at the time. And I think that when Ed joined, we started to (laughs) um, enjoy, you know, the artificial more 
Um, kind of lean into it I, as a thing, yeah. Yeah, and to, and to play act more. I, I noticed that my own um, performance style changed a lot um, <laughs> in the years after Ed joined. I became more self-conscious, and I, as a way of, of being fun, you know, to, to, to be more hammy, you know, or to <laughs> play tricks on the band or play tricks on the audience more often. Um, and to, to, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I just think that Ed's influence, um, you know, create, created something of, and, and, and camp came into the band more. Um, I, I think that camp was always part of the band. We, we were always deliberately bad. I mean, I think that that's, that's an element of noise music um, in, in many cases, particularly, you know, kind of first wave original noise. Like shags, um, you shags, know, it was yeah. meant to be ugly. It was meant to be destroy music. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it was bad on purpose. And that that kind of humor has always been in Deerhoof. But I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. When when that, once I joined the band, it, it was like <laughs> we found a, a new way to embrace that humor. And I, I think that it's become. I don't know. The band has become. Uh, more loving and more fun. Um, we always had fun. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to oversimplify, but it's just become. And 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 we've also still had our struggles and difficult times, you know, since 2008. But yeah, it's just been. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, I'm very very grateful because that's the period that we're still in. And uh, I, I sometimes can't believe that we're still together and, and we seem to enjoy it more now than we did, you know. Um, it's more fun now. Every, all of the, you know, we did Offend Maggie first and we, we went back to Tiny Telephone for that one, actually, um, the, for the final time. Um, recorded everything there and maybe even had a couple days, you know. Right, right. <laughs> like we really <laughs> pushed on and I still mixed it at home, but but like we didn't do the panic rush thing, um, and, uh, which which is kind of the beginning <laughs> of that era. And and amazingly enough, I'm gonna have to have you on again to talk about it because uh, we, we've because we're at two hours because we're at two hours and and we've already talked about so many amazing things. But uh, I'm I'm very glad that we're at least uh, starting to get into you know. Uh, almost this decade uh and 2021 I, I won't make it a year and a half before the next one uh for, for sure uh greg it's been so great talking to you man thanks so much for coming back on the yeah, show thank you thanks for letting letting me ramble on and let's and um the- yeah let, let's do this again soon hope you know sweet i i, I always enjoy hearing from you and i, I want to get into the latter day stuff as well and uh oh, yeah, just really appreciate so- you and everything you do man yeah, likewise. Thank you very much for keeping in touch and reaching out, finding me again. <laughs> I'm good with that. Next time we'll talk about what you've been up to more. No, 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 we won't. Hog this <laughs> it's not, not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Thank you, Conan. Thank you so much, Stay Greg. Stay warm. Stay healthy. All right. Take See care, brother. Bye. Bye. Oh, there he goes. Greg Sonier of Deerhoof. Uh, that was awesome. Hey, uh, Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. This has been Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. <sighs> ProtonicReversal.com for the archives. I'm going to try to have them on uh, again soon. We'll get even <laughs> further in discography. All right, let's hear a Duroff song. Uh, we talked a lot about 
the uh, Chris Cohen era. So let's let's uh, listen to well, let's listen to something. Let's listen to Panda Panda Panda. Here we go. Deerhoof, Don Commercial. <laughs>
Milkman by Deer Hoof. And before that, we had Panda, Panda, Panda. Both great records by Greg Sonier and company, the wonderful band known as Deer Hoof. Got into more of the actual record stuff this time. Hope that was enjoyable for folks. The last, last time I... It was it was a delightful ramble last time. I think uh, it was it was kind of cooler getting into the. Why am I doing a post game on my own show? Whatever. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. I enjoyed that as well. I'm on again. We'll talk about the stuff done in the last decade. That's all worthwhile too and very cool. And I want to uh, make sure that we talk about that at some point. But hey, thanks for coming in. Thanks for watching to the show. Watching to the show. Watching the show. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Name of the show is Code of Neutron's Protonic Reversal. The show airs Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific on RadioNope.com. ProtonicReversal.com for the archives. Patreon.com slash ProtonicReversal. To get new episodes sooner and support the show, $1 a month will get you there. Otherwise, always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding.
Uh, thanks everyone for sharing the episodes around, liking, liking the show, and liking the show, and uh, doing reviews and things. It helps people find it. That's awesome, and uh, I always appreciate that. I genuinely uh, appreciate that. It's a bunch more cool stuff coming. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay safe out there. Can you hear me now? Out on and take it easy. Dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Take it easy. Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now?
isn't really broadcasting if there's no one there to receive. Hey! 